0: Hello, hello, everyone. I am Lucas Prado, and you're listening to the Sanctus Church podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by reaching and enabling people of all ages and nations to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Hope you're ready right now, and let's all dive deeper into God's Word. Momentum is about movement. It's taking a step into godly purpose investing ourselves into the kingdom, taking the momentary to eternity. It's something to be gained. It's a turning motion to shift, but always shifting forward. It's transforming. Our stories, unfolding into a new yet familiar adventure. It's like holding a memento while recognizing the hand of the artist in all the new things in unlikely places saying what God's done before will happen again but it won't look like what we're used to. It's a surprising plan only God could create. It feels like revival. It feels like anticipation and it looks like his invitation. And we accept. So let us hang on with holy expectation and know that God is calling us to greater things. We just have to say yes.
1: Hey, Sanctus Church, I hope you've been inspired and challenged through uh, our ACT series. Now, have you ever had a disagreement or uh, a strong difference of opinion with someone that actually maybe led to division or where you probably even treated that person differently? Well, you know, there was a story about a married couple that had very strong disagreements, and yet somehow the wife stayed calm throughout all of it and collected, seemed calm and collected. And so one day, the husband made a comment regarding his wife's restraint and said, you know, when I get mad at you, you never fight back. How do you stay so calm and in control of your anger? And the wife replied and said, well, I work it off by cleaning the toilet. And the husband was a little puzzled and said, well, how does that help you? And she replied and said, I use your toothbrush. And we may chuckle at that and I'm not giving any suggestions to any one of you. But in all seriousness, today's sermon is not about marital conflict, but theological disagreements or divisions in how uh, certain things arose regarding Gentile converts in the book of Acts. Now, we turn this morning to Acts chapter 15 that describes the church's first council. It was a very fundamental moment in the life of the church in the formation and direction of Christianity. Now, this apostolic council was held in Jerusalem around 48 to 50 AD. Now, the council debated whether new Gentile or non-Jewish converts to Christianity were required to keep the law of Moses, particularly the law of circumcision. It was a dividing debate in the early church. And so let's dive into this chapter uh, today and see what happened at that council and how they came to a resolution and what God is ultimately working through the purpose of the Jews and the Gentiles. So let's begin in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. It says certain people came down from Judea to Antioch who were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now these people from Judea were not sent down, but they came of their own volition, their own desire. They were Judaizers who believed that you had to be circumcised in order to be saved. Now we know that all teachers or preachers teach the truth, even if they're sincere or well-meaning. And in this case, these Jewish people were happy to accept the Gentiles into the church, but they wanted them to look like them and to act and worship like themselves and according to the tradition of Moses. They wanted the Gentiles to respect and honor and keep the traditions that they were taught. Now, they rightly believed Moses was God's prophet and gave these laws and customs. So basically, they said, well, anyone who believes in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob should also practice what Moses taught them. So it makes sense. These people were probably very genuine and sincere. Now, they, it says they thought, unless you are circumcised according to the custom and taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, circumcision, as we've looked at throughout the book of Acts, is the removal of the foreskin of the male genitalia. And it was a practice beginning from Abraham and it was a physical sign that that person was part of God's covenant people or God's covenant family, the family of Abraham since John the Baptist was circumcised, Jesus was circumcised, then of course, every male should be circumcised. The question was not if the Gentiles could be saved, but how the Gentiles are saved. Now this was a passionate theological question that caused disagreement and division in the early church. Even today, many churches struggle with how people are saved. Some people put a lot of expectations and preconditions before someone is a true Christian. Maybe they're not dressing or talking or acting the way we expect them to, and so we question, are they really saved? In verse 2, it says, Then this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Now Paul and Barnabas got into a very sharp dispute, a debate with these Judaizers, the, sharp, the word sharp expresses intense emotions with forceful differences. Basically, things got passionate. Both groups were convinced that they were correct and their arguments were not changing the other person's opinion. As a result, they had to take their questions to the elders in Jerusalem. Now, doesn't this sound like the last six to eight years in our world? Sharp disagreements in politics regarding COVID and CRT and gender ideology and climate and DEI and so many other topics. Social media is filled with people with sharp disagreements, strong emotions expressing their opinions. And so in verse 3 to 5, the church sent them on their way. And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. And this this news made all the believers very glad. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything that God had done. So some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The dispute in question now brought to the forefront by the Pharisees, this unfortunately uh, caused a great stir and a great division. Their devotion to tradition and customs hindered them from realizing how God was working in a new way. You know, sometimes we get so... Uh, used to doing the things the same way, with the same processes, the same protocols, the same rituals, the same functions, that we may become too rigid and miss the move of the Spirit. We may miss what the Holy Spirit is trying to do something in our lives in a new way. We become rigid and stuck and sometimes harmful to even other people's spiritual journey by our own traditions and expectations and ideals. I'd like to describe about six ways we can hinder our spiritual growth or even hamper or hinder a neighbor, a friend, a family member, or someone else's spiritual growth. The first is performance, trying to keep God's commands in order to earn his acceptance or favor or grace. The second is perfectionism. Perfectionism is an unhealthy desire to do things the right way in the fear of going to hell or doing something wrong to to make God angry with us. The third is pride, where the elevation of our religious opinions and beliefs over other people or other churches to make ourselves feel better or superior. Power, using guilt and shame tactics to get other people to do what we want. Or persistence, which is being rigid and stubborn in our beliefs, unwilling to adapt, accept a different point of view, a different understanding of the way things are. We become persistent and rigid in what we think is right. Or we start to pick apart or judgmentalism, having a critical spirit towards something or someone with the intention to demean and to tear apart, to hurt, to bring down, or to destroy. So this morning, would you just take a moment and invite and ask the Holy Spirit to open our hearts, to shine a light regarding the contentions that we may have, maybe with God, maybe with the Bible, maybe with the church, our pastors and ministry leaders, or even certain ministries or the way we do certain things in the church. Let's ask ourselves, invite the Spirit to to bring conviction into our lives. As ourselves, do I struggle with pride or performance or perfectionism or power or persistence or picking apart other people for their failures and their faults and their deficiencies? Let's invite and ask the Holy Spirit, bring conviction, transform change and renew us you know there's a story about a lady who went to the pastor and said pastor i'm not going to be going to this church anymore and the pastor responded why and she said ah you know i saw a woman gossiping about another member you know my connect group leader is a hypocrite the worship team is living wrong people are looking at their phones during the service and there's so many things that's going wrong in this church and the pastor replied and said you know what ma'am could you do me a favor before you 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 leave could you just take a, take a glass of water and I want you to walk around the church three times without spilling a drop on the ground. Afterward, you can leave the church. The lady thought, this is too easy. You know, I could walk around the church three times with a glass of water. And, and the pastor said, when I'm finished, I, I can leave. And so the lady got a glass of water and then she started walking around, carefully going around the church, walking around. She did it once. She did it twice, and then she did it three times without spilling any water. And she came back to the pastor, and uh, the pastor said, Can I just ask you a few more questions before you leave? When you were walking around, did you see anyone gossiping? The lady said, No. Did you see any hypocrites? The lady said, No. Did you see anyone looking at their phones? No. And the pastor said, Do you know why? He said, Because you were focused on the glass. You're focused on the water that you wouldn't stumble and spill the water on the ground. And you know, it's the same thing with life. When we keep our eyes on Jesus, we don't have time to see the mistakes and the failures and the gossips and hypocrisy and all the failures and faults. All of us have it of other people because our eyes are fixed on Jesus. When we keep our eyes focused on the one who is the author and finisher of our faith, we don't have time to focus on the failures and faults of others. And so God invites us this morning, instead of criticizing and looking at this person's failure, the church's failure, the pastor's failure, my wife's failure, my husband's failure, my parents' failure, this person, keep our eyes on Jesus. Keep our eyes on Jesus. I'd like to share another demonstration here this morning for you. I have here, in the aspect of understanding our focus on Jesus we must be united and and we are like these straws you know we're different backgrounds different cultures ethnicities uh, uh, the way we grew up we're different different gifts different talents uh, different abilities so we're all uniquely different but God has a purpose for us to bring us together united for his glory and for his work so I'd like to do a little demonstration this water as we saw, can represent Jesus, where our focus should be on Jesus. But this water is also our power source. Last week, Pastor John talked about what is our power source? Is our power source something that may be demonic or unhealthy or dark? Or is our power source the Holy Spirit? And so, as we work together as a body, as a unit of the church, we need to be united, and we need to, yes, keep our focus on Jesus, but also our power source should be through the power of the Holy Spirit in order for us to be united and to fulfill God's purpose as a church. And so I'm going to do this demonstration, and you can even try it at home one day, is you take one straw. If I have one straw in the water and one straw out of the water, it can speak of when there's division, when we are not in alignment and unity. And so when we try to drink the water, if you try it, put one straw in and out, Nothing comes out. I don't, I'm not able to drink the water. When there is division, when there's disunity, when, when we have divided purposes, when, when we're not aligned together in one. But now if I put both straws in the water with the same power source, you see, when they're divided, they're drinking from different power sources. And when we're from different power sources and different focuses, we're not able to fulfill God's purpose in our lives and as a church. But now, together, I'm able to drink that water freely. And it gives me energy and life and power and strength to continue to serve the Lord. And so this is what the struggle in the early church was. They're, they had differences. They were divided. And they were not able to fulfill and, towards God's purpose. And so this is why this council was so important. See, in our pursuit for doctrinal unity, we we certainly need conviction, but there's also nuance. You know, Martin Luther once said this. He said, softness and hardness are two faults from which all the mistake of pastors come. And I love how one pastor shared, I'd like to share what he he wrote. He said, hardness and softness are twin errors. We have to be careful to avoid in order to preserve unity and conviction. On the hardness side of the spectrum is something we call sectarianism. Sectarianism, where one holds to beliefs and convictions and doctrines in a way that does not allow nuance to distinguish between various types and kinds of doctrines at different levels of importance. The other side of the spectrum is minimalist. They're the group that tells us, let's not divide over doctrine. Let's just love Jesus because all the non-essential doctrines doesn't matter. So sectarianists sacrifice unity for the sake of doctrinal purity while minimalists sacrifice sound doctrine for the sake of unity at all costs. Both extremes are not helpful for the church. This pastor outlines four tiers of doctrines. The first order of doctrines are essential to the gospel, and without these, you're basically not a Christian. For example, if we deny the Trinity or the divinity or the humanity of Christ or the resurrection of Jesus, these are first order doctrines. The second order doctrines are required for the health and the practice of the church. And for example, some modes of baptism, whether infant or believer baptism, uh, the nature and the use of spiritual gifts, the essence of communion, they're second order doctrines. The third order doctrines are important to the theology of Christianity and they impact and inform second order doctrines. Um, but they should not be the basis for division among Christians. For example, regarding the age of the earth or millennial theology, whether you're post or pre or amillennial. The fourth order of doctrine are, are not important to the gospel or the function of ministry. For example, instrumentalism in, the, in worship. Should we use drums in church? Should we use guitars or piano? or maybe the precise dating of the books of the Bible. Those are fourth order. Let's not divide uh, churches and groups and families over fourth order doctrines. As someone else put it, the first order is absolutes, second order is convictions, third order is opinions, and fourth order are questions. The minimalists will keep very few in the first and second order, while the sectarians will mostly keep all of them either in the first or the second order. We just need wisdom, how to live with conviction and unity. German Lutheran theologian uh, theologian, Rupert Melendinus, he said this very well-known quote. We probably all know the quote. It says, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. You know, I, I, I think this phrase is a beautiful summation of how to handle differences in doctrine, in conviction, in practices, and in beliefs. So now coming back to Acts 15, we look in verse 6. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. And after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them and said, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them. For he purified their hearts by faith. You see, Peter began his speech by alluding to his own experience, his own testimony of God, how he saved the Gentiles. Remember, we went through this in Acts chapter 10 when Cornelius and his family was brought into the family of God. You see, God did not look at their outward experience, their titles, their accomplishments, nor did He wait for them to get circumcised or follow any religious observances. But God saved them by faith alone. God knew their hearts, cleansed them, purified them, and filled them with the Spirit. See, the beauty of the kindness and the goodness of God is that He doesn't wait for us to get ourselves fixed and cleaned up and get our lives in order before He saves us. He accepts us with all of our mess and all of our sins and all of our failures. He deposits His Spirit in us to work in us, to change us, to transform us, to restore us, so we're not like we used to be. And so this morning, you may be a skeptic or a seeker, or maybe you're someone wondering whether Jesus truly loves me and accepts me, I want to invite you this morning to talk to Jesus. Why don't you say these words? Jesus, I need you. Forgive me, cleanse me, and give me new life. You see, all it takes is a sincere heart. In faith, trusting and believing that Jesus died on the cross to forgive us, to cleanse us. And he rose again to give us new hope and new life. And so this morning, will you pledge allegiance to King Jesus and follow him? Now, Peter continues and he says, Now then, why do you try to test God by continuing on the, uh, to putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither you nor our ancestors have ever able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. You see, Peter challenges them by asking them, why are they testing God by putting these bondages, these laws and customs, heavy yokes upon them when they themselves as Jewish devout people could not even keep the law of Moses? They're expecting the Gentiles to keep the law of Moses when they themselves couldn't. You know, Peter was honest with them and said, we believe that we are saved through the grace of God alone. And so shouldn't the Gentiles? Then verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened Barnabas and Paul started telling about the signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. People were stunned and Peter did a fantastic job articulating the case for grace and proving that the law of Moses was not a requirement for salvation. Then Barnabas and Paul, they gave their account of how God was working, even through their journey and their trip among the Gentiles, how Sergius Paulus from the city of Paphos heard the word and believed, how the Gentiles from the city of Antioch of Psydea believed in Jesus, how Jews and Greeks from Iconium got saved, how a crippled man from Lystra was healed, and many disciples were formed even through their travels. God was working exciting things were happening and God was doing marvelous and new things in the gentile world. Now in verse 13 it says when they had finished James spoke up he said brothers listen to me. Now this is James the brother of Jesus. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name for the gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with what it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins will I rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may see the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. Do you notice what James is doing? He's tying all the voices and events together as they're sharing, He's tying them to the prophetic word of God spoken hundreds of years ago from the prophet Amos in Amos 9-11. The testimony of apostles' salvation stories of God's blessing and healing. James is showing how God is confirming his word spoken hundreds of years ago. And then he renders his judgment and his proposal on how to incorporate the Gentiles to the church. Here James alludes to the restoring of the tent or the tabernacle of David. Can I ask you a question today? Why does God choose to restore the tabernacle of David and not the tabernacle of Moses? Why didn't God want to restore Solomon's temple? Remember, Solomon's temple was a glorious, beautiful, magnificent temple, far greater, far bigger than even David's simple tent. Well, when David brought the Ark of Covenant to Jerusalem from the house of obed he placed it in a simple tent on Mount Zion. The Ark represented the presence and the glory of God. Now in Moses' tabernacle, the ark rested in the most holy place and it was restricted from everyone except the high priest who would go in there once a year and then the priest who worked in the holy place could experience, in one essence, the, the presence of God through the, ta- uh, through the ark of the covenant. However, David's tabernacle or tent was an open tent accessible to everyone and anyone who would pass by. They could see and experience the presence and the glory of God. And that is why James tactfully and spiritually uses Amos 9-11 to teach his Jewish brothers, the elders there, how God made His presence accessible to all, not just to the circumcised Jews. And that is why Hebrews 4:16 says, Let us come and let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive grace and find, uh, receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. James, through the spirit and the wisdom of God, used Amos 9.11 to articulate God's plan and heart. And in Amos 9.12, 9, 12, it says God says that all nations will bear his name. You see, God called Israel not just because he wanted them to be his only people, but to be a model and a conduit in which the blessing of God would flow through them to all nations. And then James says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So the consensus by the elders was not to expect the Gentiles to be circumcised, as was the custom, of Moses to be saved. Because based on the miraculous work of God, the Spirit of God moving, God's salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Now this was an extraordinary moment for the church, something that may not be impactful for you and me today because we're so used to how church functions, but it reverberated throughout the church at that time, especially for the Jews who were taught and who grew up under the law of Moses. This was earth-shaking, troubling, shocking, mind-altering. I basically have no words to describe how big a deal this moment was for the Jewish Christians of that time. And then in verse 22 to 35, we read how the elders chose some of their own men and sent them with Paul and Barnabas to read this letter, what they've come to the conclusion, this council letter. They were to take this letter and go and start reading them in Antioch and spread it to all the churches. This is how The church is going to function going forward. And so as I close, I'd like to summarize some thoughts. Michael Green beautifully summarizes the key learnings of the Council of Jerusalem and the wisdom of the church. And I'd like to read some of the key findings. The first is they allowed free and open debate. They allowed themselves to freely have debate. And that's what we, we need sometimes, is to have free and open debate. Second, they stood firm on the essentials. They knew the first order, second order, third order, and fourth order. They were able to prioritize what is essential, what is important, what they would not compromise on. The third is, then they compromise on the non-essentials. When they knew what was in the first order, they knew what they can do with the others. Third, fourth, they were happy to have a variety in practice among the Jewish and non-Jewish Christians. They were happy to have certain different practices for different types of people, and they were con- content with that. And finally, they were anxious for love to reign and for fellowship not to be broken. And this is something the world needs today, something we need as Christians. They were anxious for love to reign and for fellowship not to be broken. Now, this is a wonderful picture of how Christians should navigate differences and disputes. The elders said, the, the Gentile converts did not have to get circumcised to be part of the church. However, they gave some dietary conditions and also said not to participate in sexual immorality. Now, why did they mention these conditions? Because in most cities, non-Jewish believers and had to live alongside Jewish believers who had been brought up by the Levitical customs and food restrictions, and they were told to avoid uh, non-Jewish people, and they had to eat certain types of food and not eat certain types of food. So in order for them to have the free association for the Gentiles and the Jews to have connection, especially when they were having table fellowship, for example, communion in the early church was done over a meal, not as it's done today, but For the sake of unity and function, the elders said, okay, keep some of these uh, restrictions, these food restrictions, in order to bridge the gap so they can actually function together and they could eat together and serve together and fellowship together. But you read a little later on, particularly in the book of Corinthians, how Paul allowed people, according to their conscience, to eat meat offered to idols. And now that's another topic and another sermon for another day. But it's worth noting that the only condition to continue Was such from the very beginning of time, from the Old Testament and New Testament, was sexual immorality because any sexual activity outside the confines of marriage is sin. And so as I mentioned before, God wants to restore the tabernacle or the tent of David. Why? Because it was an open tent, accessible to all people of all nations. And this is God's heart and God's purpose for humanity. The Council of Jerusalem was a pivotal moment for the church because it officially codified and authorized the Gentiles to be part of the church, the family of God. God was working to bring people, as we read in the first 14 chapters of the book of Acts, from Simon to Cornelius to uh, the Ethiopian eunuch and a host of others. And now the elders affirmed and confirmed what the Spirit of God was already doing. At the very core, scripture outlines God's plan to unify diverse nations into one new humanity through Jesus. The Jesus movement is the most culturally uh, and ethnically diverse movement in human history. God unites nations of all backgrounds while still retaining the beauty and the uniqueness of each culture and each nationality. Now, If you go to the top of Mount Olives, east of the old city of Jerusalem, there's a church called Pater Noster. And church tradition says that this church was built at the very spot that Jesus taught the disciples the Lord's Prayer. At the church is a display of the Lord's Prayer in a hundred different languages. This reveals the diversity in God's kingdom, yet pointing to our common, unified faith. Now, we who live in North America sometimes have a very limited view and scope of the scale of Christianity around the world. Philip Jenkins, in New Faces of Christianity, he writes this, I'd like to read. In the world today, there are approximately 2 billion Christians. Of those, the largest contingent, about 530 million, live in Europe. Close behind is Latin America, 510 million. Africa is about 390 million. Asia has about 300 million. However, if we project towards the future, those numbers quite, they change rapidly. In 2025, the title for the most Christian continent, the continent with the largest number of Christians, will be in competition between Africa and Latin America. If we move further into future, and there's no doubt by 2050, Africa will win. In terms of population distribution, Christianity will be chiefly a religion of Africa and the African diaspora, which will, in in one sense, be the heartland of Christianity. You see, when God made humans together as male and female, He comprised them in the image of God in Genesis 1.27. And God's desire for humanity was to be his ambassadors or image bearers that they were required to be unified toward all creation. And right in the garden became the first casualty of this unity that ruptured and the division occurred between Adam and Eve when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that rupture led to the fracture of relationship between God and humans. So instead of seeking unity with God and reflecting God's image, the humanity found and seek, sought their own image in the Tower of Babel. They unified around their own image and tried to build this tower. And so then God chose and elected Abraham's family to fulfill his purpose. And Abraham's family became the nation of Israel called, chosen, and commissioned to be a blessing to redeem all nations. Unfortunately, the Old Testament outlines the faltering of the family and generations of the prophets and priests and kings who ultimately failed and went the way of Babylon. However, the major and minor prophets of the Old Testament prophesied of a Messiah who would come and would do and would be uh, to the nation of Israel what they could not do, and he would come and reunify Israel and draw all nations to the family of God. The Messiah is Jesus, and he is the ultimate for faithful Israelite. And so after the resurrection and the Great Commission and the ascension of Jesus, the disciples were empowered by the Holy Spirit to carry the gospel, the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to all nations. And this is why the Council of Jerusalem was so important, because the elders decided that the law of the circumcision from the time of Abraham, the calling of that family, was no longer required for the Gentiles, to be part of the family of Abraham, the family of God. And so God gives us unique identifiers. And I'll close and share with this in Colossians 1, verse 1 to 2. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And in this verse, Paul addresses three identity markers that you and I have as followers of Jesus. First is Family. Paul uses the household terminology, faithful brothers and sisters, to express the family unity that we have. We have the same Father. The Holy Spirit in us forms us into the image of Christ so that we share family characteristics. We belong to one another. We're connected to one another because we belong to Christ. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. Second is we're saints. We we not only become part of a new family, we are given a new identity, saints. In the Bible, the word saint is not used to describe some superpower, elite class of Christians or some holier-than-thou people, but those who are called and set apart from the world. Holy. To be a saint means you're called and chosen of God. You know, like our church's name, Sanctus. We are made holy because of Christ. And so we are reminded that we are who We are who we are because it depends on who we belong to, and that's Jesus. And finally, in Christ, we are united to Christ by faith. We receive Him, and everything that belongs to Jesus, everything, can you imagine that? Everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to us. We receive through grace what is Christ by right. His inheritance, eternal life, sonship, and all other spiritual blessings belong to us because we are in Christ. God the Father sees us through the lens of His perfect Son, Jesus, because He has an immeasurable love for Jesus, and He has an immeasurable love for you and for me. I love how one author wrote this. He said, while details describe you and me, only Christ defines you. While details, details describe you, only Christ defines you. The real you is defined by Christ, not by circumstances, history or background or past or accomplishments or feelings. You are who God says you are. You are a son or a daughter made in his image, part of his family. You are not bound by your past mistakes or sins or failures. You are not chained chained by what you've done, by your past and your failures and mistakes. You are what God thinks you are, not what others think you are, or whether good or bad, or even what you think of yourselves, whether, you are, whether positive or negative. Your identity is not based on your wealth and your family possessions and your family history or your education or your citizenship or your job title or how people know you by. As we identify ourselves as children, we are ambassadors and, and we represent God to creation. We have been given as stewards the work of serving God in new creation. God's powerful love sweeps through this world and he helps renew this broken world. I'd like to close with this story uh, and understanding regarding the, the caste culture in India. It's a culture that is poverty driven. It's, it's uh, male domination where female children are often regarded as a problem rather than a blessing. There was an article written in the AP in 2011 where census statistics from India showed that the ratio of female to male children under the age of six was steadily declining. This was the result of rising abortions of female babies and the intentional neglect of female children. The reality is far more costly for an Indian family to raise a girl than a boy. Families often would go into debt arranging marriages and paying elaborate dowries or money given to the other family. A boy, on the other hand, would one day bring home a bride and dowry. And so in India, hospitals today are legally banned from revealing the gender of an uh, an unborn fetus in order to prevent sex elective abortions. Part of the ugly fallout of India's gender crisis is that thousands of female newborns have been named to reflect their family's disappointment. So there are some kids or some babies are born with, and they're named unwanted uh, in their birth certificate to proclaim the child's unwanted welcome status. So there's an activist group called Save the Girl Child and how this group promotes renaming ceremonies to help these girls officially change their names and maybe even their future. In one such ceremony, North India, 285 girls traded their names of shame and were filled, that were filled with contempt and disgrace and disrespect. God, uh, this, this group was able to change their names to provide them with joy and peace and hope. Because what's in a name? Well, it's our identity. These girls have been saddled with a legacy filled with contempt and disgrace and disrespect, unwantedness and rejection. But a simple act of changing their names fills them with dignity and self-worth. And this morning, some of us need a name change. Some of us need an identity change. This morning, especially being a family day weekend, God is inviting all of us to enter the tabernacle of David. A place open to all to experience the presence and the power and the glory of God. You see, there's no preconditions to fulfill it and to be accepted and to accept Jesus Christ into our hearts, to surrender and submit our lives and our will to Him. There's no rituals or rites to perform, to be part of the family of God, to be part of the church. As James stood and declared that the Gentiles were accepted into the church without any need, of circumcision, God welcomes you, God welcomes me. Especially if we've never put our faith, if you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus, you are welcome. Or maybe you're drifting or drifted away. God is calling you back into his presence to experience his grace and his power. You and I are not forsaken, we are chosen by God. God is for you, not against you. And you are who he says you are. Because in, God's, in the Father's house, There's a place for you and for me. God wants to unite us together and remove division, remove the pride and the perfectionism and the performance and the judgmentalism in our lives as a church, as as, as a community, that we can be unified and, and purposeful towards God's calling for us as a community and even for our lives individually and collectively as well. So would you join with me as we pray this beautiful prayer from the Book of Common Prayer? The prayer will be on the screen, and if you feel comfortable, please let's say this prayer together. O God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our only Savior, the Prince of Peace, give us grace seriously to lay the heart of the great dangers we are in by our unhappy divisions. Take away all hatred and prejudice, and whatsoever else may hinder us from godly union and concord. That as there is but one body, and one spirit, and one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, so we may henceforth be all of one heart and of one soul, united in one holy bond of truth and peace, of faith and charity, with one mind and one mouth glorify Thee, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
0: Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There you find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. And last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to hit the follow button to be notified when another episode releases. Well, that's it for today. And may God bless you so, so much.